All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Here in the last part of verse 17, you kind of see the, the setup for the entire next section. It says, lest the cross, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And there in the last part of verse 17, you see two words. You see wisdom and you see power. And you're going to see wisdom and power carried all throughout verses 18 following through until you get to chapter 2, verse 5. And in chapter 2, verse 5, it ends by saying that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And here you see wisdom and power again, forming somewhat of a bookend on this section of Scripture to tell you that in between this section, what we're going to look at, what we're going to see, what we're going to talk about is that the power of God is mightier than any wisdom of man. And that's going to be your ultimate theme and your ultimate goal, but that applies to us in several different ways. Let's read what the text has to say, and then we'll back up and walk through it quickly. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a scandalon, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We notice here right at the very beginning in verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross. Now, word there is an interesting word. It's the word logos. You think of the word logos, and you think back, and you remember John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. But what's interesting to me is that Paul here changes what he's saying, because in verse 17, he says he did not preach the gospel, the euangelion, the message of the gospel. He shifts here, and he says, for the word of the cross, the logos of the cross, the man Jesus of the cross, he shifts to give us an entirely different idea. And then later on in this passage, he uses the caruso term, which means the preaching, And all three of those Greek terms are used in this one section of Scripture, but here he says it's the logos of the cross. 
And he says it is folly. Now, if you've got to focus on keywords, and as you do your Bible study, you understand I focus on the keywords of the passage to see what the passage is saying to me. The keywords in this passage you're going to find are wisdom, folly or foolishness, and then power. Those are your three key words. And so you're going to see foolish or folly in this one section of Scripture six times. You're going to see wisdom or wise in this section 14 different times. And you're going to see power or strength in this passage seven times. Those are your three key words as we walk through this. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, I've got for you here Isaiah 29, 14 through 16. This is the passage he's quoting here is verse 14. You can see here verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. The wonder upon wonder, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now, if you remember back to Isaiah, you'll call the Assyrians were coming and Sennacherib was coming upon them and Hezekiah got all of his people together and throughout all of this entire portions of Isaiah, he's prophesying about doom and gloom and they're trying to figure out in human wisdom, what are we going to do that's going to change all of this? So they make alliances, they offer bribes, they do all these things and at the end of the day, what happens is that God delivers them when an angel kills 185,000 soldiers. And so it wasn't the wisdom of the world, but it was the power of God. And here Paul is pointing back to this Isaiah passage that I have up here for you, Isaiah 29, 14, and then it moves on to verse 15 and it says this, ah, you who hide deep counsel from the Lord, deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. You see here what he's doing is he's pointing back to scripture and saying, remember back to what Isaiah said. When you thought that human counsel was wiser than God, but God came in and showed that his power was greater. And then he moves in verse 20 and he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. Notice that saying in that particular passage. The world did not know God through wisdom. We understand that in the world, you have two different forms of revelation. You have general revelation and you have special revelation. Special revelation is how God communicates in a special way to us, Scripture being one form of special revelation. General revelation usually comes in two main forms, which is creation and all that we see in creation that tells us there's a designer, there's a creator, and through our inward conscience bearing witness against us. And so we see when we look at the book of Romans, particularly in Romans 18 through 22, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from the heavens against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now there's the key phrase, because worldly wisdom that seeks to know God through worldly wisdom always suppresses the truth. It looks out and it says, okay, there are things in the world that are great, but then it suppresses that truth and comes up with some type of other explanation for them. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So what does general revelation do for us? It doesn't save us. It merely tells us that there is a creator and it places us without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Doesn't that relate back to our passage here today as we look and see that? Not only do you have that, but you also have the conscience in Romans 2, 15. It says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men in Christ Jesus. Here's my point to you. Paul is saying to them that by the wisdom of men, they did not know God. Why not? It's because we suppress the truth. We do it today. We do it all around us. We look out and we see that there's a creator. We see great things. One of my daughter's favorite DVDs is Animals That Defy Evolution. Anybody in here ever watched any of those animals, study those animals? They're so cool. But my favorite one's the bombardier beetle. The bombardier beetle is really cool. I keep trying to find one of these. If you don't know about the bombardier beetle, you need to go on YouTube and look at it afterwards, not now, after we get through the sermon. And check it out. The bombardier beetle combines two substances and then shoots out something that explodes. It's kind of like a beetle with a gun. And the beetle with the gun shoots out things that explode and it wards off offenders or people who are going to do harm to it. Another cool one is the giraffe. Have you ever thought about the giraffe? The real long neck of the giraffe, and when the giraffe goes down to get a drink, all of that blood should run right to the brain of the giraffe and explode that brain right out the top of his head. And as the giraffe is falling over dead with his brains down in the water and hits the ground, it says, oh, I better evolve. If I don't evolve, then I'm just going to have this happen over and over again, right? That's not what happens, right? And as you study the giraffe, you understand there are valves all the way up through the giraffe's neck that cuts off the blood supply. But if all the blood were cut off, then when the giraffe stood back up, it'd have one of those massive head rushes that we get, and it would fall over, and then it would be eaten by a lion or something coming along, and that would be a problem. So there's this one little sponge area in the giraffe's brain that keeps blood so that it has just enough so that when it stands back up, all of those valves can open up and the blood can continue to go in through there. Everywhere you look in creation, you look and you see design. You see irreducible complexity, things that cannot be reduced any further to be explained, and yet we see there's a a designer that has made this all happen, but what do we do with it? We suppress the truth. We push down the truth. In our own wisdom, we do not find God. Instead, we rebel against God and we exalt our own wisdom. My wife and I really love to scuba dive. Any scuba divers in the room? Come on, y'all have got to go scuba diving. I know it's cold up here, but you got to go scuba diving. On our, on our anniversary, 10-year anniversary, we went on an all-inclusive trip to go scuba diving in Jamaica. And so we're scuba diving in Jamaica. And this is my souvenir I brought back. Isn't that pretty? No, it's ugly, isn't it? So why is this my souvenir that I brought back? Because you've all seen these conch shells that are really pretty and beautiful. It's because this one comes from 100 feet deep in the ocean. While I was out there, we went with one of the dive masters and went diving to be advanced open water certified. And when you're going to be advanced open water certified, you have to go down to 100 feet deep and do a couple of exercises that deep under the water. Now, why do they do that? They do that because what's called being narked 
It's when you have the oxygen that's compressed in your body and you have nitrogen that's being created. Some people start acting really goofy and they go weird. For example, some people decide that up is down and they start swimming deeper. And if you swim deeper, eventually you die. The pressure just crushes you. Some people decide they can go up to the surface in a hurry and they want to get out of that water and so they take off. Some people just go completely crazy and start taking their regulator out of their mouth and trying to talk a hundred feet under the water. And so when you do your advanced certification, they take you down to a hundred feet deep and you level off and you stay there and they see how you react to it. They also run a couple of tests on you. Like, for example, with us, they had us write our names backwards on a slate. And so up on the boat, we wrote our name backwards and they clocked us. And they clocked how long it would take you to do it. Well, now, I, I knew this immediately was a competition, right? And anything that's a competition, you have to win. If you don't win, you're a loser, and I can't be a loser, and so I have to win the competition, right? So I'm sitting here thinking in my mind, this guy doesn't know who he's messing with. I mean, I play Halo on Xbox. I, I can destroy this. This is easy for me. And so I do it up, up top. Actually, up top, I did it a little slow just because I knew it was a game, right? So I wrote a little slow up top, and he clocked it. And so then I'm like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it faster. I'm going to be the only person that's ever done it faster. I get down to 100 feet deep. I'm getting ready to go. I'm already thinking in my mind exactly what my name is backwards, and I'm getting ready. And he says, go. I write it as fast as I can. He stops the watch and turns it around to me, and it took twice as long 100 feet deep under the water. I thought, stopwatch is broken. There's no way. I'm going to ask him about that when I get back up there. So we're, we're doing our dive, and, and we're going along. And I look over at my wife all of a sudden, and I see that my wife has this really weird color fingernail polish on. It's kind of a blue-violet fingernail polish. I looked today to make sure she didn't have it on. She doesn't, okay? You had no finger polish today. But she usually wears like a classic red or something like that. And so I noticed this was just this really weird color. And I thought to myself, that's odd. When did she do that? I didn't know she did that. Did she go get a manicure when I was asleep or something? And I was going to talk to her about it. But if you take your regulator out underwater, bad things happen. So I just made a mental note, decided I'll ask her when we get up top. And so I made the note. I get up top. We get in the boat. I pick my bone with the dive instructor and say, your stopwatch is broken. There's no way it took that long. And I say, what happened? Well, listen to what he told me. He said, when you're 100 feet deep under the water, you're surrounded by pressure all around. And that pressure that you're surrounded by affects the way you think so that your brain can't work as clearly. And that's why it takes everybody longer to write their name backwards 100 feet underwater than it does on land. And so then I thought, I got to ask him this other question. Because I just looked over at my wife and her fingernails were blue we're blue underwater. They're red when I'm on the boat. And so I'm sitting here thinking, I would have sworn in a court of law that she had on blue fingernail polish, and I'm looking at it now on the boat, and it's red. And so I asked my dive instructor, I said, look, am I going crazy? Don't tell everybody, because you know, I don't want to lose man points, but I could have sworn that her fingernail polish was blue when we were diving, and now it's red. And he kind of laughs, and he says, oh, yeah. Well, when you're in the water, the farther down you go, you lose light starts getting darker. As you lose light, you lose colors of the rainbow. You remember your colors of the rainbow, right? Roy G. Biv. So you lose your reds, your orange, your yellows, your blues, your indigos, your violet, and all goes dark. We had gone down far enough that the red fingernail polish was no longer showing up red, but it had turned to a bluish indigo type color. 
And he said, that's what happened is you lost the light. And you needed the sun to shine light on it so that you could see clearly. What I want you to understand about general revelation is that we live in a fallen world. That we ourselves are fallen. And that our reason is so fallen and so impacted that we cannot look out at the world and accurately perceive what's going on. We need the light of the sun, which comes through the special revelation of Scripture, shining down on general revelation so that we can accurately perceive what is taking place around us. And without the light of Scripture coming down upon it, we're not going to perceive it correctly. And so we may think we have wisdom, and we may think this makes perfect sense in my mind. We may think I can write my name just as fast, 100 feet underwater as I can otherwise. We may think that red is blue, and it looks just like that because we perceive it that way. But unless we have the light of the sun shining down on it, unless we have the special revelation of Scripture, our perception is flawed because we are fallen human beings. If you'll get this, you'll understand life a whole lot clearer. You can't argue with people with your own wisdom and convince them it's the power of the gospel. It's not how smart we are. It's how powerful he is. Oh, he continues on here. Notice, though, his whole argumentation. Paul here quotes Isaiah, and then later on he's going to quote Jeremiah. And he's quoting Scripture instead of using a secular argument or a humanistic argument or any other philosophical argument. He uses those in some places, but he always brings it back to Scripture, and Scripture always ends up being his main point. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Has not God made foolish all this wisdom of the world? Now you're sitting there thinking, well, why did I come to college then? He just made foolish all the wisdom. I don't need to know it, right? No. Because the next sermon, we're going to talk about the wisdom of God and properly understanding God's wisdom. But in this one, we're talking about the worldly wisdom, which God has made foolish. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know him through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Look at what it says in verse 22. The Jews demand a sign. John, in his book, uses signs for miracles. Do you know anybody out there that just wants to see miracles and powerful things happen over and over and over again? It says here the Jews wanted a sign. And what they want is one sign after another sign after another sign. So you feed 5,000, you come up the next day, and he goes, what are you going to do next? And it wants to get a greater sign and a better sign. We don't come to Jesus seeking what's going to happen next. We don't come to Jesus saying, Jesus, what are you going to do for me next? You did something great yesterday. Something's got to be better today. That's not how we come to Jesus. And then it says also the Greeks seek wisdom. We don't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need an airtight philosophical box. Because if you can put Jesus in your box, if you can put God inside your brain, your finite mind, the infinite God, you've created an idol in your own mind and you're not serving the one true revealed God of Scripture. We will never understand everything about God. And if you think you've got everything understood about God, you've got a God that you created and not a God that's the God of the Scriptures. He says here, the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a scandalon, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. I've even got the word scandalon written up here for you just because, I don't know, I thought it was cool. And so there it is, scandalon, that which causes offense and thus arouses opposition. What is the cross? The cross is that which causes an offense and arouses opposition. You don't believe that? Just go around talking about Jesus and the cross. You go around talking about Jesus and the cross enough, people are going to start saying, he's weird, she's weird. 
That's offensive. You can have your truth, but let me have my truth. There is no the truth. And once you start having a the truth, people are going to say you're not tolerant any longer. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? I've got a verse here for you as well. Deuteronomy 21, 23. His body shall not remain all night on a tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The Jews were looking for a sign. They were looking for a savior to come down and wipe everything out and restore their kingdom and to make them prominent again. And when Jesus came, he came and he was lowly and he didn't do that. And he hung on a cross and they said, this is not what we want. This is not the power we want. The Greeks said, this is not the wisdom that we want. There's nothing sophisticated about this. And it's the cross that was a stumbling block to them both, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. Verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And I've got to rush through some of this next part. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise. Don't be offended. There's only a few really, really wise people out there. I'm not one of them. Don't say amen. According to worldly standards, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, and this is the good news for us. Let's just be honest. This is the really good news for me. This is the good news for some of you too. Is that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It's that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And he did so so that no human being boasts in themselves. Nobody boasts in their pridefulness, their arrogance, but that we boast in the Lord. And here he continues on in verse 31, he quotes, So it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And here he's quoting Jeremiah 9.24. I've got Jeremiah 9.23 up here for you. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. There in Jeremiah 9, 23, he gives the three things. He gives the wise, the mighty, and the rich. Here in 1 Corinthians, he says the wise, he talks about the strong, and he talks about those uh, who are noble. And he says, God has chose the low things. Let's think about how God works. He came first to the shepherds. Let's think about Moses, who was adopted, left in bulrushes, who then led all of the children of Israel out of Egypt. Think about Gideon and his 300. Think about Peter, who had foot and mouth disease, and the whole time Peter then is preaching, and 3,000 are saved. Get this. My daughter, the other day, said, hey, Daddy, watch this. And she runs and she jumps up over three steps. And she goes, that's pretty good, isn't it? I said, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Because that's my daughter. I don't care what she does. That's pretty awesome. We don't have to teach kids to boast. We do it naturally. I don't have to teach you to boast either. You do it naturally. What are you good at? Immediately something comes to mind, and I hope it's not Halo. You should see my soccer skills. You should see me on the basketball court. I'm brilliant. I'm four times smarter than you'll ever be on your best day. I can beat you up. (laughs) We've all got something, right? I mean, we go to the weight room. 
we're going to see Bruce Lee over there power squatting the whole gym. And we're, we're, we're going to see Dave in there working and Dave's going to be bench pressing like 800,000 pounds. And we're all going to be looking and he's going to make sure we're looking too. Cause you know, I mean, that's what we do when we lift weights, right? We wear shirts that are three times too small where everybody can look at us and see the big ripples on our arms. And even as little boys, you know, we put that big arm up there and we take pictures of it. It's getting bigger, daddy. You see that's muscle right there at two. You don't have muscle at two, but that's what we do, right? Oh, and the ladies do it too. The late, they get all prettied up and then they want to show everybody how pretty I am. I'm prettier than you are. I'm smarter than you are. I can sing and you can't. We all have something we boast in. Understand this. All right, guys, here's my dating tip for the day. Women don't like it when you boast. I found this out the hard way, but they don't because it's like arrogance. And they would rather have somebody that loves them and that's a good listener and that's has humility and all the things I'm still working on. And God says to us, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Just real quickly. And I promise I'll end here in about two minutes. So then Paul says, I came to you, brothers, and I didn't come to you with a testimony of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. By the way, testimony there is martyrion. It's the martyr. It's where we get it. He came to him with a testimony. All of you have a testimony. All of you can go to somebody with your testimony because all of us who are saved have a testimony of I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You may not understand how to explain evolution, creation. You may not understand what four points, five points, eight points, 12 points. It doesn't matter if you understand all that. You have a testimony because God has saved you. He brought his testimony, not with lofty speech or wisdom. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that goes back up to verse 23 and should remind us there that that's the stumbling block. And I was with you in weakness. And this gives me great assurance. How many of you get scared when you share the gospel? Some of you say, I don't know. I've never shared the gospel. Okay. How many of you who have shared the gospel get scared when you share the gospel? Me too. You don't ever get over that. You're dealing with eternal things of significance. I still get scared when I come up here to preach, especially in front of all of you. And here it says, I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear and much trembling. So if you're getting ready to share the gospel and your knees start shaking, you're just being like Paul. No big deal. Just give your testimony. It's the power of Christ. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's what I want you to get if you don't get anything else. Don't be arrogant before God. Have a heart of humility. Have a heart that's quick to repent. Have a heart that recognizes this earth and everything in it is about his power and not our power. Have a heart that no matter how smart you are, how many books you write, how much money you make, how powerful you are, that you're never going to be arrogant before God, but you're going to submit yourself to his word, to his scripture, to his revelation, and submit yourself to it humbly. If you get that one key principle down in life, your life will be so much easier. Submit yourself to God. When we're young, we boast of our power. When we get older, we lose some of that. You boast in your wealth. You get really old, you boast in your wisdom. Oh, I've seen a lot of days. What Paul's saying here is don't boast in any of that. Boast in the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough and cared about us enough that through the foolishness of the cross, you would save those who would believe. 
Father, may we always be quick to share our testimony, quick to point to your power and not our own, humble before you and quick to repent and to submit to your leadership in our lives. Lord, may we never value our wisdom over your wisdom, and may we never be arrogant before you. Lord, I pray that you would be with student, staff, and faculty this week. Just help us all to share our faith this week as we go. Give us all a great week that we may glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.